Chapter 8. Trumpet Lessons with Adolf Herseth. Bud always felt a strong commitment to pass on to students his artistry and his vast store of knowledge. He considered the example that he set through his performances and recordings with the Chicago Symphony and his solo performances to be his most important method of teaching. In addition, he delivered his lessons in a more personal manner to a select few students. These lessons included regular private sessions, plus sectional coaching with the four trumpet players of the Civic Orchestra each year during the eight-month main season of that ensemble. In addition, he granted occasional private lessons to a limited number of professional and semi-professional players from both the United States and abroad who would travel to him for assistance. Besides these one-on-one and sectional lessons, Bud also coached a much wider audience when he presented his esteemed masterclasses in both the U.S. and around the world. I had the extremely good fortune to receive very extensive training from Bud in each of the above categories over an extended number of years. In my case, these tutoring sessions included his performances with the symphony, which I absorbed both in person and via broadcasts and recordings, his numerous solo presentations in the Chicago region, the regularly scheduled private lessons that he granted to me on a year-round basis, both before and during my two-year tenure in the Civic Orchestra, his sectional coaching while I was a member of the Civic, his private lessons during my early professional years, and my attendance at the master classes that he occasionally presented in the Chicago area. In addition, I later received intensive on-the-job training by working closely with him in the CSO trumpet section for 18 years, and also by playing a program of solos and duets with him after I'd been in the orchestra for five years. Through all of these combined avenues, an immense amount of guidance and direction in the art of brass playing and music making flowed into me from the master. During my training years, Bud provided a great number of tips that assisted me in my development as a musician. Many of these gifts from him were overarching concepts, which defined and explained his various approaches to making music in an artistic manner. However, an even greater number of his pointers were specific to the individual pieces at hand. My etude books, my volumes of orchestral excerpts, and my sheet music of the standard solo pieces are replete with my pencil notations reflecting his coaching. In addition, the notebook in which I jotted down both his general concepts and his specific pointers concerning various aspects of playing and certain pieces gradually developed into a treasure trove of invaluable information. It would be both burdensome and boring to the non-trumpet playing readers for me to present here the myriad tips and pieces of advice that Bud offered over the years concerning specific etudes, orchestral works, and solos, as well as those concerning trumpets, mouthpieces, and mutes. It will suffice to convey the elation that I often felt when he made a number of suggestions concerning a given passage, since his pointers typically made the elements of that passage suddenly fall into place and sound much like a recording of Bud Herseth and the CSO. During each of my tutoring sessions with Bud, which usually ran for two to three hours, He regaled me with his vast store of anecdotes about various pieces, concert halls, and conductors, as well as the misadventures of offstage playing, plus other delightful and not-so-delightful incidents from his long career. It is not my role to present these myriad stories here, since that role is reserved for Bud. However, it may be of considerable interest to both musicians and other individuals for me to offer here a small selection of the concepts that were conveyed in his coaching sessions during the course of my many years of training. I was an absolute greenhorn in the area of symphonic music and its performance when I commenced my lessons with Bud. 
As a result, many of the pointers that I needed were rudimentary ones, although they served me well throughout my entire career. On the other hand, I had received eight years of solid training in the fundamentals of trumpet playing from my father before my introduction to legit music. No aspects of this firm early foundation ever required alteration during my many years of music making. What I did need were multiple layers of additional coaching. Thus, the tutoring that I received from Bud, beginning when I was nearly 20 years old, leaned very heavily toward musical concepts and the finer points of artistic performance, and much less toward the actual craft of playing the instrument. This is very much reflected in the notations that are recorded on my pages of music and in my lesson notebook. However, this also reflected Bud's own approach to playing as well, since he nearly always focused on the musical aspects of performance. It is very important for readers to understand that the following musical concepts were just some of those that were passed on from Bud to me. A huge number of other facets of music making were conveyed to me via his performances of orchestral pieces, brass ensemble works, and solos, as well as the passages that he played and sang while sitting beside me during my lessons in his basement studio. By emulating his oral model, I became infused with a huge body of musical principles that were seldom or never communicated verbally. Some of these nonverbal features included the appropriate styles in which to play a wide variety of music, as well as fine tone quality and accuracy of intonation and rhythm. He also conveyed, through the example of his playing, a manner of making music that was guided by the greatest degree of professionalism, dedication to excellence, and passion for the highest quality. Before we go on, let me explain that the rest of this chapter is comprised of several major sections, and within each of the major sections there are several minor points within the section. What you're going to hear to notate the beginning of a major section is the Tibetan bell, which sounds like this. And then to mark from one point to the next, you'll hear four metronome clicks that sound like this. All right, let's do it. Musicality and Artistry. Music is a form of communication, the telling of a story. Since vocalizing is the most natural form of musical expression, an instrumentalist should approach playing as if he or she were singing a song with a text. Send a message to the listener every time you play, sometimes by imagining specific words for the music. Do not just play the notes that are printed on the page. Convey their meaning by imitating the human voice. Translate the instructions of the printed music into a storyline of sounds so that you're concentrating on projecting thoughts and ideas. Tell a tale, express emotions, utilize a very wide range of dynamics. Let it hang out a little, take some chances, do not hold back. Focus on sending a message rather than on executing a passage. The style of playing that is always mellow and mild is comparable to a storyteller who always speaks in a moderate monotone. Be authoritative and expressive with each note, thinking of the notes within each phrase as individual words within a sentence. The whole point of music making is to convey a story clearly and effectively, not just to produce a steady stream of sounds. The best approach is to mentally visualize exactly what you intend to come out of your bell. The sound, the melody, the phrasing, the emotional content, the message. 
Then, with a very positive attitude, focus on creating that mental product while you're playing, utilizing an expressive lyrical approach. Do not sabotage yourself before or during your performance by worrying about succeeding or anticipating errors or thinking about the physical processes that are involved. Likewise, ignore the physical sensations of playing and the situation in which you find yourself. Simply concentrate on the desired musical goals. Except in occasional instances, it is very important to avoid all thoughts about the physical, mechanical activities that are involved in performing, as well as the physical sensations that are produced by the act of playing. The process of making music must always be directed outward, not focused inward. With the proper attitude and a strong focus on musicianship and artistry, most of the technical and physical aspects of playing will evolve naturally. For this reason, always perform, never practice. There are appropriate times for both beautiful and crude styles of playing, depending on the storyline of the music. However, certain attributes contribute to the musicality of playing in nearly all styles and instances. These attributes include a round, natural tone in all registers, not an artificial squeak in the high range, a steady rhythmic pulsation, a constant forward directional flow of the musical line, and long phrases that represent vocalized sentences rather than fragmentary portions of sentences. Give considerable thought to the appropriate performance style for each piece, including its historical period. Listen to live performances and recordings of excellent musicians for input. The considerations should include such features as the color of the tone, the type of articulations, the usage and qualities of vibrato and its degree of obviousness, etc. To broaden your repertoire of playing styles, it's important to perform a wide variety of different styles and genres of music, such as symphonic musicians playing dance band, jazz, and rock music. Whatever the type of music being performed, it is crucial to always play in a very musical manner. Familiarity with these various genres will contribute considerably to mastering the great array of different styles that a symphonic musician must perform in the repertoire today. When you're performing in an ensemble, never play isolated notes or passages. Listen carefully to your colleagues. Study the score if possible, so that you know what your part is contributing to the sound of the ensemble at each given moment and also so that you understand which musical elements in the group are important and which are secondary at each moment. Singing Singing your music as an integral part of daily preparation and performing is an invaluable aid in playing in a natural, vocal manner. It is equally beneficial no matter what piece of music you're preparing. The act of singing clarifies and reinforces the mental image of the end product that you want to produce on the instrument. However, vocalizing also allows you to solidify the mental images without any interference from the physical equipment of the mouthpiece, the horn, and the occasional mute, and without depleting your chops. Utilize the syllables ta or to most of the time when you sing, since these sounds replicate the standard and staccato articulations that are produced on brass instruments. However, on legato-tongued passages, sing the syllables da or do. Singing with these two syllables, whether they are initiated by a T or a D, also causes the throat to remain habitually wide open and the tongue to remain flat on the floor of the mouth.
This facilitates the unobstructed outward flow of air while you're singing and playing, and the inward flow of air when you're breathing. Ideally, you would sing all music in the correct concert pitch, as it would sound on the horn. However, the range of a piece very often eliminates this possibility. In any case, the correct relative pitches of the notes, in relation to each other, must be maintained at all times when singing. It is also important to be able to mentally visualize the exact concert pitch of the first tone of a passage. This should be occasionally checked by singing the first tone just before you're ready to start playing, and then checking your sung pitch against the pitch on the horn or a keyboard. When you use singing to become familiar with a brand new piece, it allows you to work out most of the musical details before you first play the piece on the horn. Through vocalizing, you can master in advance the transposition, the steady rhythmic pulsations, the articulation patterns, the smooth slurs, the natural phrasing, the relaxed and steady flow of air, and the musical message, and also firmly set the pitches and their intonation in your ear. All of this will take place while you're maintaining your mental concept of a beautiful tone in all registers. By using this approach, all of the associations with the piece are positive and musical, without any tension or apprehension before you produce it on the instrument. Your focus is maintained on musicality and artistry, rather than on the technical, physical aspects of playing the horn. Rhythmic pulsation, while both singing and playing, adds solidity and liveliness to all music, and helps all of the elements of the music fall into their proper places. This crucial pulsation is produced by adding a breath accent, not a tongued accent, on each of the primary beats in the music, on beats 1 and 3 in 4-4 four, four meter, for example. This rhythmic pulsating, usually unobserved by the listener, provides you with guideposts for making all of the notes and the rhythmic figures fit naturally into the phrases and the melody lines. And here's a personal note from Tim. When I would play for Bud during lessons, I was regularly amazed at the degree of obviousness of the pulsating breath accents that he would request. These accents seemed overly obvious to me as the producer, but they were either inaudible or barely audible to the listener. In addition, it was amazing just how effectively these accents functioned in giving the music a natural bounce, liveliness, and expressiveness. After becoming quite familiar with a piece through vocalizing, when you perform the piece on the horn, mimic your sung version and the mental images that your singing developed. After you have completed one or more passages on the instrument, replay them in your head. Compare them to your ideal mental image, sing them again, and then play them again on the horn. By this method, your attitude will remain positive. Your focus will stay fixed on the mental product that you want to recreate on the horn. Your playing will become as natural as singing, and your chops will rest appropriately between each of the short performances. Singing is also very effective for burnishing pieces that are already familiar to you. It allows you to refresh and clarify all of the elements of the music in your head before you play a piece. This approach is applicable at all times, as preparation for such activities as practicing privately, rehearsing with accompanist or an ensemble, performing, and auditioning. It is invaluable for maintaining a positive and artistic approach to music making. When a given situation is not conducive to vocalizing out loud, silent mental singing can be nearly as useful in burnishing your mental tracks. 
Vocalizing of your music should be done for about a half hour each day, in addition to the singing that you intersperse with playing during a practice session. These separate vocalizing sessions can be done at other times than the practice sessions that involve the horn. Mouthpiece buzzing. Buzzing on the mouthpiece is also an integral tool for performing well on brass instruments. Like singing, buzzing promotes a clear mental image of the desired musical product. However, it also involves many of the physical processes of playing, but without the interferences of the instrument. On the mouthpiece, the individual pitches are in no way regulated and delineated like they are when the horn is added. This lack of definition forces you to solidly fix the desired pitches and intervals in your ear without the aid of the instrument. In addition, the lack of defined pitches also provides you with completely unrestricted freedom. The sense of uninhibited freedom that you experience while playing on only the mouthpiece is one of its greatest benefits, since the natural vocal style mannerisms that come with this freedom later transfer to the horn when it's added to the mouthpiece. The mouthpiece is best played by being held with the thumb and one or two fingers near its outer tip and angled in such a way that there is equal pressure on the embouchure from all areas of the rim. To emphasize the completely free, unrestricted aspects of mouthpiece buzzing due to the missing horn, walk around casually, swing your free arm, bend your knees, move your body around considerably while buzzing. However, for the most part, keep your trunk straight upright since leaning will squeeze one of the lungs. Produce the biggest and richest sound possible and play jazzy, showy, technical music rather than careful melodies. At the beginning of the buzzing session, don't be concerned with the initial articulation of a passage and the clarity of the articulations within the passage. Just get the lips vibrating and the air flowing first, which is easiest in low register slurred passages. Then the clarity of the initial articulation and the tonguing within a passage will fall into place. Buzz both articulated lyrical tunes and technical passages. Like singing, mouthpiece buzzing can be very beneficial as preparation for playing difficult pieces. First, buzz a passage on the mouthpiece, and then repeat it on the horn while retaining the free, uninhibited approach that you used while buzzing. It is important to always buzz with your mouthpiece rather than with your lips alone. Buzzing without the mouthpiece develops an embouchure that has the width of the entire mouth rather than the width of the mouthpiece rim. Sound and Tone Think of the sound at all times while you're playing. Clearly establish in your mind the sound that you want to produce by doing plenty of listening and singing. Then when you play, relay this mental concept through the horn to the listener since the trumpet is simply a mirror of the sound that is in your head. Play by sound, not by feel. Ignore all of the physical sensations of playing and only focus on the product that is coming out of the bell. The sound must always be the criterion for how to approach any element of playing, such as the appropriate amount of air, the degree of mouthpiece pressure to use, etc. However, a generous flow of air is absolutely crucial in producing a good sound. The greater the number of lip vibrations, the bigger and richer will be the tone. Thus, by practicing pedal tones a little each day, your lips will tend to adopt the vibrant quality of pedal tone production when playing in all registers and increase the overall richness and fullness of your sound. 
Author's note, I played a few pedal tones at the very end of each private practice session, and also sometimes after particularly demanding rehearsals and recording sessions, since they refreshed my chops somewhat. I did them in downward octave slurs from each of the notes from low C downward. Slurring down an octave from the note to the pedal tone, and then back up an octave to the note, as well as sometimes playing simple melodies entirely in pedal tones. To develop and maintain a good sound, practice long tones in all registers and at all volumes, concentrating on excellent quality. To produce a lively focused tone in the low register, from low C down, pretend to say the syllable TE when playing in this register. When you play soft passages or short notes, Produce as full and rich a sound as when you play at loud volume or on a long note. Start with a big, ringing sound on the first note of each phrase, rather than starting with less than a full tone and then increasing it to full size. To emphasize this concept, sometimes practice the first note of a lick in the middle or at the end of a passage to clearly establish the full, fat, and relaxed sound of that first note in your mind. Then play the lick as written, while maintaining the mental image of that rich, healthy sound. Likewise, always maintain the tone through the end of the final note of a phrase or a lick. Especially concentrate on this when playing long phrases. To emphasize this aspect, sometimes practice just the end portion of a phrase or a lick alone, when you have a full breath, to remind yourself of just how it should sound when it appears at the end of the full-length phrase. Vibrato often makes the tone appear to be fuller, partly by relaxing the player. However, the use of vibrato, as well as its speed, width, and obviousness to the listener, must be musically appropriate for the particular style of music that you're performing. In some instances, when a discrete amount of vibrato is appropriate, thinking of using virtually no vibrato will reduce the width and speed of your vibrato to the appropriate levels to fit the particular style of music. In general, Bud used lip vibrato, except in those instances when he wanted to have an obvious, strong vibrato, such as when playing the offstage lyric solo in the Pines of Rome. Then he used hand vibrato. I used hand vibrato at all times. In some instances, he used vibrato instinctively rather than intentionally. He was sometimes surprised to hear in a recording that he had used it since he had not been aware of it while he had been playing. Air and breathing. The steady movement of flowing air, not the pressure of the air, is what produces and sustains the sound by causing the lips to vibrate. The concept of, quote, breath support is not at all air pressure produced by a tight abdomen, but instead a steady stream of air flowing freely. This is the same as the action of the bow on a violin. It is the movement of the bow across the strings that produces the sound not the pressure of the bow upon the strings. Think of a big, thick column of flowing air while you play, and use a generous flow rate of air at all times. It is physically possible to overblow the amount of air, creating a woofy, airy sound in the high register, for example. However, this very seldom happens. Use the quality of the tone as the deciding factor, so that you're focused more on the song and less on the wind. Know exactly how long you're going to hold a note, and keep flowing the air right through to the end of it. By doing this, the final note will retain its rich quality of sound and will not fall off at its end. 
When you play soft passages, flow the air as if you're playing loudly. Likewise, when playing short notes, especially on high pitches, flow the air as if you plan to hold them out long. Move the air rather than allowing it to remain static and mentally aim the airflow straight out, especially while playing in the high register. Airflow is the key to endurance. By freely flowing plenty of air, the air bears the bulk of the work rather than your embouchure. Thus, when your chops are tired, they're able to continue producing sound if you flow the air well. During heavy blowing passages, reduce the mouthpiece pressure somewhat if you can. Imagine that you're blowing the mouthpiece away from your face. To maximize the amount of air and its free flow, your throat must remain as open and motionless as possible while you're playing, and your tongue must remain flat on the bottom of your mouth out of the way. When you sing the music with a big, open vocal sound and with the syllables ta or toe and da or do, you are practicing keeping these features of your airway open and unconstricted. By vocalizing, you're practicing this while focusing on the musical elements of performing, not on the physical aspects. When you take in a breath, in order to maximize the amount of air brought in and minimize the amount of time required, imagine that you're silently pronouncing the syllable ho. This silent syllable removes all obstructions in the airway that might be caused by the tongue and the throat. The sound of the air flowing in quickly and freely will indicate that your airway is open and unconstricted. Practice breathing without the instrument, using the same maximum speed of inhale and exhale, flowing the air freely without any pressure on the air. Also practice breathing while holding the horn and mouthpiece in position, but without playing, taking in a large volume of air in a minimal amount of time. By using the silent syllable ho for breathing, the size of the opening for taking in air at each side of the mouthpiece is maximized. As you breathe, the lungs expand and push down the diaphragm, which in turn pushes out the stomach. Thus, a full, deep, relaxed breath causes the stomach to expand outward. Breathe deeply from the bottom of your lungs, not from high in your chest. However, after the lower area of your trunk has filled, let your chest and collarbone area rise naturally. Don't restrict any natural movement of your trunk. For a wind instrument player, the most valuable air is from the point when the lungs are about three quarters full to a little below the at rest level. Above and below these two points, the effort to flow the air is greater and the speed of its flow reduces. Thus, it is not of value to try to completely fill every available space in the top of your lungs when you take in a breath or to utilize every bit of air at the bottom of your lungs when you play. Take in a large amount of air in a very short period of time, so that the act of breathing is as quick as possible. By doing this, you will not disrupt the tempo at breathing points, and you will minimize the breaks in the musical line at those points. In some cases, when the upcoming phrase or lick after a phrasing point is rather short, and less than a maximum breath is needed to play it with a good sound, Taking a shorter breath will keep the melodic line flowing well with a minimal interruption. While you are playing, allow your trunk to collapse as your air flows out. Do not keep your chest and collarbone area in the raised position. If you are reaching the near empty stage but still have more of the phrase to play, think of an easy outward flowing of the air rather than of squeezing out the last of the air. 
Keep your elbows away from your sides and imagine that your lungs are expanding rather than contracting as you approach the bottom of your supply of air. Starting the tone. It is crucial that you have a clear mental picture of the entire phrase that you're about to play rather than having an image in your mind of only the beginning of the first note. In this way, you'll be focused on an entire segment of music rather than on just the initial tone. For starting a soft passage, set the mouthpiece firmly on the embouchure with the full usual pressure that you use for playing the pitch that begins the passage. Do not wait to increase the mouthpiece pressure until after you have commenced playing. Mentally visualize a big, beautiful sound rather than a thin sound. Sometimes practice melodies around the initial entrance note to establish a relaxed and singing sound in your mind. Take in a big, relaxed ho breath with no tension in your entire body. This is the only point at which you think at all of the mechanics. From the end of the breath intake onward, think only from the musical and artistic viewpoint, focusing only on the message that you wish to send to the listener. Know exactly when you want the phrase to begin, and at that instant immediately commence singing the rich tone and flowing the air. For high entrances, this will entail using a fast, clean articulation. Do not start the tone with explosiveness, except when you're instructed to do so by written instructions on the page. The above series of steps for commencing playing are to be done in a natural, relaxed, rhythmic sequence. Whatever the quality of the initial articulation of the entrance, concentrate on sustaining a good sound and producing the musical product that you envisioned. Tonguing. Execute all articulations cleanly and clearly at all times, whether you're playing standard, staccato, or legato tonguing. This entails a fast tongue movement no matter the speed of the tempo. Note this especially when you're playing slow tempos and legato articulations. Do not allow the tongue to work slowly and interfere with the airflow. Keep the tongue flat on the floor of the mouth while articulating, which you practice each time that you vocalize your music with ta or to and da or do syllables. It is crucial that you maintain the fullness and the fine quality of your sound while articulating, whether in standard, staccato, or legato style, and in both single and multiple tonguing. When preparing to play an articulated passage in order to maintain your focus on the tone, first vocalize the passage as written, then play it all slurred, and finally add the tonguing to the playing. Note that playing tongued passages requires more air than playing slurred passages. To keep the air flowing freely, articulations should consist of only about 5% consonant, T or D, and 95% vowel, A or O, too much emphasis on the consonants inhibits the flow of air. There should be no greater emphasis on the consonants while tonguing than there is in our normal speech. When you want to accent an articulation, this is usually done by flowing more air at the beginning of that particular note rather than by adding more tongue to that note. To develop and maintain good articulations, you should practice solos and orchestral excerpts as much as tonguing exercises and etudes. Whatever the music you're performing for polishing articulations, keep your focus entirely on the musical features 
rather than on any mechanical aspects. To avoid falling into habitual ruts, vary the styles of the articulations from time to time in the various etudes that emphasize tonguing. When practicing interval exercises, mix up the articulation styles. When you're perfecting a staccato passage, first acquire the desired sound while playing it with standard tonguing, connecting all of the notes. Then gradually add the spaces between the notes, all the while maintaining the same fine quality of sound. While you're practicing single, double, and triple tonguing, overlap the range of speeds of the three styles. This will equip you fully for any musical demands that you may encounter, and it will also facilitate the production of identical sounds within the three different styles. There are instances when you should use the multiple tonguing patterns of ta-ka and ta-ta-ka, not only for articulating at high speeds, but also for their musical effect. The configuration of ta-ka-ta is also useful in certain instances, particularly for producing clarity in each note when you're playing fanfare figures. When playing cornet solos, the multiple tonguing passages should be smooth and legato. In most other instances, legato versions of double and triple tonguing are usually used only to facilitate very fast articulations. High range. When you play in the upper register, as in all other performing, first clearly imagine the fine tone and the musical message of the passage. Then vocalize it to firmly set the images in your head. And finally, sing out the passage on the horn with plenty of airflow and without forcing. To encourage a generous movement of air in the upper register, crescendo as a passage ascends to its high notes. Do not back off from the high pitches. Instead, give them an extra amount of air. Also, to play in the upper range in a relaxed fashion, sometimes practice by glissandoing up to the high pitches to clearly fix their sound in your mind and then play them without the glissando approach. To play with ease in the high register, practice a passage in the low range, then the middle range, and finally in the high range. Maintain the same generous flow of air, good quality of sound, and clear musical message in each of the registers. To maintain your focus on a rich tone in the high range, practice starting a melody on various upper pitches in a relaxed fashion without an initial articulation. Sustain the good sound no matter the quality of the initial entrance. Later, add the initial articulation to the entrance while maintaining your focus on the tone. Also, sometimes practice entering on a high pitch and playing it as an isolated note, concentrating on the quality of the sound and the movement of the air. Sometimes practice a certain passage on one of your high horns and then mimic the relaxed playing of the passage in the same concert pitches on the lower horns. Miscellaneous Concepts Know exactly how you think each passage in a piece should be played and perform it that way unless the conductor instructs you otherwise. Do not wait to be told how to interpret a passage. When you are performing a particularly difficult lick, broaden the notes slightly and sing them out especially clearly to make them all speak well. Emphasize the short notes within a passage with broadness and breath accents in order to make them sound equally clear in relation to the long notes. Every note within a line must have forward direction. 
Sustain the dynamic level throughout a passage. Do not lapse into a comfortable mezzo-forte volume and coast along. Likewise, sustain the full sound of each note over its full length, rather than carelessly allowing the individual notes to decay. Think of all of the tones in a passage as being level, on the same plane, no matter how high or low the pitches are, and how wide the intervals are. This will be reinforced by your daily vocalizing, in which range and intervals are not challenging. Keep the tempo moving steadily forward at all times. Do not drag the tempo. There is a natural tendency to be late when entering after a rest, especially if the rest is at the beginning of a measure. Listen closely to your colleagues and join in without disrupting their pre-established tempo. When you insert rubato into the rhythm, retain the basic steady pulse, the continuity of the phrase and the larger musical units, rather than creating a series of separate, unrelated figures. Use very little rubato in Baroque solos. To play very soft passages, lean forward and point your bell into the music stand to decrease the projection of your sound. Never back off when you play. Have no inhibitions. Do not plan to project your musical ideas with your body language. Instead, channel those ideas through your horn. Completely relax your body when you play, and if a certain amount of discrete body language happens to occur, let it happen. Never work harder than necessary to get the desired result. Your fingers and tongue must move as quickly in slow passages as in fast ones. In French literature, a dot over or under each note within a slurred group indicates that you are to lightly articulate each of those notes. In Mahler's works, a marcato marking, an inverted V symbol over a note, indicates that you are to add a broad breath accent to that note, not a hard-tongued accent. It is not a question of being better than someone. How can you love trying to be better than another person? It is a matter of doing it for yourself, and also for the joy that you can bring to others. In a symphony orchestra, the desired sound of the French horns is produced by having their bells aimed backward, causing the sound to first bounce off the rear wall and then project out to the audience. In small brass groups, the horn sound should be more closely matched to the other instruments, which produce sounds from bells that are facing forward or upward. Thus, the members of chamber ensembles should be seated accordingly so that the audience hears side-facing or forward-facing French horn bells. Cornet versus Trumpet Originally, the cornet was generally conical over most of its length, expanding in bore diameter from the mouthpiece receiver to the beginning of the flare of the bell. In contrast, the trumpet was generally cylindrical, with much less expansion of the bore from the receiver to the beginning of the flare of the bell. As a result, the sounds and the characteristics of blowing of the two instruments differed accordingly. However, modern cornets and trumpets have very few differences between them. Trumpets are now more conical than before, and cornets are more cylindrical than before. As a result, they are very similar in their type of sound, smoothness and ease of blowing, projection, etc. Today, their differences are mostly just a matter of how the tubing is wound and curved. 
Stravinsky and Montoux, who premiered many of Stravinsky's works, both stated that the players did not have to use cornets on the parts that Stravinsky had labeled as cornet parts. These two distinguished maestros could not discern any differences between the sounds of the two instruments. High Horns Always relate your playing on the high horns to that on your big horns. Do not overbreathe or overblow on the piccolo trumpet. Because of the lesser amount of air that is required on the piccolo, a great deal of piccolo playing will naturally cause you to breathe too shallowly when you're playing on the big horns if you do not watch for this. Usually practice the piccolo at the end of your practice session after you have finished all of your work on the big horns. However, it is useful to sometimes alternate back and forth between the piccolo with its smaller mouthpiece and the big horns with their larger mouthpieces, since you may occasionally be required to alternate in this manner in the performance of a piece. Keep in mind that piccolo playing is an extra specialty, not a major part of playing. The vast majority of your basic work takes place on the big horns, so these are the ones that ought to receive the most attention. Practicing. Never practice. Always perform. In your daily practice sessions, balance the time spent on so-called exercises with time spent on real music. However, at all times, no matter the kind of piece, perform musically and artistically. When you're mastering a new piece, first become very familiar with it by singing then work it up slowly on the horn before finally bringing it up to full tempo. Melodic playing is very important since it emphasizes good sound and musicality and keeps your focus off the mechanics of playing. This vocal approach to music making, even sometimes thinking of a specific text for the music, carries over when you perform technical pieces. Rest often during a practice session, whenever necessary, to try to keep feeling fresh at all times. However, it is also important to play full-page, challenging etudes to develop your endurance. Vocalizing during a practice session is excellent, since it allows your chops to rest while keeping your mind focused on artistic music making and a beautiful sound. With this approach, you can be resting nearly as much as you're actually playing, making your practice sessions very productive and encouraging. When you reach the point where you're really forcing and the notes are not speaking, either take a long break or end the session. In general, practicing etudes offers many more benefits compared to practicing orchestral excerpts, since the etudes were composed to offer challenges, develop certain aspects of your playing, and keep your performing flexible. It is important that you maintain the entire range of technical skills and familiarity with all of the horns at all times so that you're always ready for the demands of any piece. Do not focus too much on any particular aspect of performing in your daily practicing just because it is especially easy and pleasant for you. Likewise, do not avoid any element of playing in your practicing because it is especially challenging for you. To keep from falling into ruts of routine, and to develop a better understanding of the music that you play, vary the styles of articulation, the locations of the slurs and the tongued sections, the keys of transposition, and the volume level of pieces when you practice them on different days. 
Also, sometimes play them on trumpets with a different pitch. Improvise your own practice pieces and invent variations on pieces that have already been written. In addition, vary the order of your practice sessions on different days. All of these approaches will keep your mind fresh, interested, and focused on artistry rather than simply running through the same standard routine every day. One of the major drawbacks of thinking of the warm-up as a separate part of daily playing is that this fosters the idea that you first warm up and then you perform. We must be performing from the first note of the day until the last one of the day. Approaching the warm-up as a set prescribed preparation before performing easily leads to the idea in the player's mind that he or she cannot perform well or sometimes not even perform at all without going through the warm-up routine. From the very first note that you play in the morning, think of performing, but in an easy manner at first. We do have to acknowledge that we are using many muscles in playing, and as with any strenuous muscular activity, these muscles have to be awakened, so to speak, before they can operate at maximum efficiency. At the same time, the first portion of our daily playing is the time when our brain wakes up, too. The speed at which this happens is related to how much is expected of the brain. That is why we should vary our daily playing routine so that the brain is not on automatic pilot. Instead, it needs to be very interested and focused on producing artistic music with a fine sound from the first note to the last note throughout the day. Starting each session with mouthpiece buzzing is excellent since it activates and engages the mind, the playing muscles, and the breathing apparatus. On days off in the schedule of rehearsals and concerts, starting the day with a half-hour session with a break of about 10 minutes in the middle, and then doing two more sessions during the course of the day and evening, each one about 45 minutes, is excellent for maintenance and progress. On days with an evening concert, doing the morning session plus a light session in the afternoon, with its content varying according to the demands of the program that particular week, puts you in good condition for the evening performance. Practice the elements of playing that are not on that week's program. During heavy blowing weeks, practice light lyrical pieces and delicate articulations. Likewise, on light weeks, practice demanding etudes and upper register pieces. Take advantage of the input of both the tape recorder and friendly listeners. They can be objective and they sometimes hear what you cannot hear while you are occupied being the producer of the music. When it is necessary to practice with a mute, such as when you have to play in a hotel room while on tour, the cup mute is best for these sessions. Johnny Howell warmed up before each commercial show entirely with a cup mute. This was similar to a runner practicing while wearing ankle weights and feeling very fleet of foot when the weights were finally removed. For Johnny, taking the cup mute out for playing the performance gave him the sensations of unfettered freedom. Taking about two weeks off from playing once each year is excellent for both refreshing your attitude and sharpening your musical approach to performing. Each time you return to the horn after this long annual break, your playing improves a little since you return to music making thinking slightly more clearly and artistically. After the long respite, start back by buzzing the mouthpiece three times a day in 10 to 15 minute sessions for two or three days. Then a week of playing, increasingly strenuous music should put you back into nearly full condition. Transposing 
Transposition, which involves playing different notes and in a different key than the music that appears on the printed page, is a constant requirement for symphonic trumpet players due to the history of the instrument. A natural trumpet without valves could only produce the notes in its single overtone series. These harmonic notes were spaced in rather wide intervals, except in the upper register of the instrument. For example, on a trumpet pitched in the key of C, the ascending notes in the overtone series from pedal C upward would include C, C, G, C, E, G, B-flat, C, D, E, F, and G. Thus, scale-like passages were available to the player only in the extreme upper range of the instrument. To offset this major limitation on the number of available notes, crooks were invented. One of these U-shaped sections of tubing, when inserted into the instrument, changed its overall length and thus its key. Various crooks of different lengths would change the trumpet into various different keys, each with its own respective overtone series. After the development of crooks, composers could write for the trumpet in many different keys. During a performance, the player would change crooks as needed to change keys and thus make the required notes available to him. For example, during the course of Mozart's opera Don Giovanni, the trumpet players changed crooks 35 times. By the early 19th century, the trumpet in low F, a perfect fifth below the modern C trumpet, had become the standard orchestral instrument. Supplied with a full array of crooks, the player could alter his F-pitched instrument to play in the keys of E, E-flat, D, D-flat, C, and B, and when the crooks were coupled together, also in B-flat and A. Finally, the Prussians Stolzel and Blumel invented the valve in 1815, which was perfected within the following two decades. This development allowed the length of the trumpet, and thus its key, to be changed instantaneously. The seven valve combinations that were possible with three valves offered the player the equivalent of having the harmonic notes of seven natural trumpets, or one trumpet with six crooks, available at all times. Early composers wrote trumpet parts in the keys of the various natural instruments that were available, and later in the various crook-derived keys. After the invention of valves, the B-flat trumpet, a perfect fourth higher than the low F trumpet, became the standard orchestral instrument during the course of the 19th century, as the parts that were being written became more and more demanding. Later, during the second half of the 20th century, the C trumpet supplanted the B-flat in the role of the standard orchestral trumpet in most locales in the world. This long and convoluted history has led to the present situation in which most orchestral parts require transposing, often involving a number of different transpositions within the course of a single piece. In addition, players sometimes choose to use another instrument than the C trumpet on a given piece in order to facilitate its performance or to achieve a particular type of sound. These instances also require various transpositions. The following list presents the methods that are commonly used for the various transpositions. Up a half step. Read a half step higher and add seven sharps to the key. Down a half step. Read a half step lower and add five sharps to the key. Up a whole step. Read a whole step higher, add two sharps to the key. Down a whole step. Read a whole step lower, add two flats to the key. Up a minor third. Read in bass clef and add three flats to the key. Down a minor third. Read in soprano clef, add three sharps to the key. Down a major third. Read a major third lower and add four flats to the key. 
up a perfect fourth, read a fourth higher, add one flat to the key. Down a perfect fourth, read a fourth lower and add one sharp to the key. Up a tritone, read in bass clef and one step higher, add six sharps to the key. Down a tritone, read in bass clef and one step higher and down an octave, add six sharps to the key. Up a perfect fifth, read a fifth higher and add one sharp to the key. Down a perfect fifth, read a fourth higher and down an octave, add one flat to the key. These various transpositions must be mastered and maintained to such a degree that you can sight-read music in all of them with facility. This particularly applies to the most commonly encountered keys. When playing a C trumpet on the standard orchestral literature, this includes transposing trumpet parts written in A, B-flat, D, E-flat, E, and F. Playing Auditions do not think of auditioning for something or against someone. Just enjoy yourself and present what music you have to offer. Apply the extra amount of adrenaline-driven energy that you have from the audition situation towards your music-making and artistry rather than focusing on the situation. If the listeners like your offerings, fine. If not, that's fine too. You're no less of a musician just because the auditioners did not happen to like your playing or thought that it was not appropriate for their ensemble. While you're playing the audition, think positive, happy thoughts. You know that you have utilized the audition preparation period to considerably advance your musical skills, and that is the most important goal. Toss the passages off almost carelessly, taking appropriate musical risks. While standing alone on the stage, if you perform the very loud orchestral passages at the full volume that would be appropriate within a full orchestra, your playing will tend to sound too loud and crass. To a certain degree, moderate all of the loudest passages during auditions, except when you're requested to play at full orchestral volume. Instead of max volume, project a very large, rich sound. During the course of my many years of training with Bud, I developed a number of personal insights and perspectives. Certain of these outlooks, particularly those that pertain to my own progress and advancement as a player, would serve other aspiring musicians as well. One of these points involves the issue of assessing one's own progress. On many occasions during my younger years, when certain aspects of my playing would come out ideally, I would say to myself, someday those good things that you do now occasionally will become habitual and regular. This is a kind of healthy and realistic encouragement that each of us can give to ourselves. The increments of our forward progress are always very small, but as long as they accumulate steadily, the end goals will eventually be reached. Likewise, it is not appropriate to worry about and focus on problems in our playing. We must mentally reframe the situation and simply acknowledge that not all of the elements of our music making are fully developed yet. However, with serious dedication and constant effort, all of the various aspects of our playing will eventually develop as they should. Pertaining to our end goals as we advance, our perspective on the level of quality that we want to achieve also changes. It is human nature that as our skills become more developed, we automatically and continually raise the bar of our expectations of ourselves. To developing and aspiring players, I would recommend focusing on these activities, 
Listen frequently and intently to fine players in many different genres of music. Practice in moderation and do plenty of vocalizing and play various different styles and genres of music, always as musically and artistically as possible. In addition, I would urge them to seek out a teacher who focuses very much on the artistic approach with only a light focus on the technical and physical aspects of playing and only when absolutely necessary. I would also encourage young players to master the art of being both a style setting, secure lead player, and a sensitive section player and learn to listen to and follow directives well. Finally, I would urge them to be hard on themselves and push forward with full dedication. Yet I would also encourage them to avidly engage in a number of non-musical activities that they enjoy. Success does not come easily or quickly in spite of the quest for instant fame that pervades our culture. As encouragement to those who are seeking steady and solid forward progress, I would offer this well-known adage, to attain excellence, you must care more than others think wise, risk more than others think safe, and dream more than others think practical.